Welcome to Our Connect Sessions, episode 54. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. This week, we'll be focusing on the Flint water crisis, and specifically what it means for architecture. So to catch up those who aren't super familiar with what's been happening in Flint, as just a basic exercise, we went through some of the chronology that has been accumulating on a bunch of different news sites about what's been happening. And just to give you a quick background, we'll post these to the show notes as well for those who are interested in getting caught up. But essentially what is happening in Flint is that there's been overwhelmingly high levels of lead found in a bunch of the residential water supplies. And mostly this is due to the fact that an anti-corrosion agent that was supposed to be added to the water simply wasn't. Back in 2013, Flint switched its water source from Lake Huron that was managed by Detroit. Instead of getting water from there, it switched to the river, to the Flint River. And in that switch, not only was the water itself more corrosive and had higher levels of lead, but in fact, it corroded into the lead pipes that a lot of the people in Flint used to get their water and leached more lead into the water. And so this has been going on for about two years. Flint eventually did switch its water source back to Lake Huron with managed by Detroit. However, the pipe damage had been done, so lead is still leaching into the water. And this has basically caused a huge environmental and public health crisis in the city. We posted to the news about a week ago this idea that because children are particularly at risk for the awful set of nerve damage and other health effects that lead poisoning can cause, that all young children effectively be removed from Flint, be relocated until the problem can be solved. So at this point, even though the actual source of the water has changed, is no longer from the Flint River, but back to Lake Huron, the infrastructure is still irreversibly damaged. And while National Guard and FEMA have been put down in Flint to help get new sources of water through bottled water and such, the situation is by no means solved and it needs a massive amount of funding to replace the infrastructural damage and address the public health concerns. So to dig into this issue this week a little deeper, we have a special guest. It's uh, Kurt Nicewonder. Kurt is the founder and executive director of Project Fora, a Flint-based nonprofit urban design practice focused on community-based design. Kurt, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about this issue. Hi, thank you. Uh, very excited to talk more and advocate about Flint and our water issue. So maybe you can uh, expand a little beyond my, my brief intro about what you do over in Flint? Sure. So I do have the, the project for a nonprofit. It's like a public interest design focused practice, you know, offering design services to community members and neighborhood groups. But also I'm a full-time project architect at Sedgwick and Forwater Architects in Flint, Michigan. Also currently the AI Flint chapter vice president and also the AIA Michigan Region Young Architect Regional Director for the AI, you know, so for AI Nationals Young Architects Forum. So there's a <laughs> many hats, I suppose. Wow. Is that good enough? Yeah, I'll point out <laughs> yeah. that uh, that's more than enough. Kurt and I are both in Detroit right now at the AIA National Grassroots Conference, which is happening. And so it turned out to be the perfect opportunity for us to get Kurt on the podcast because we're doing our recording live from Michigan. So he and I are both in Detroit and we're going to be heading out later for an AIA event. But it was good to, to we met Kurt, we all the podcast met Kurt at the National AIA in Atlanta last year. And it's, it's great for me to be able to hook up with him again here at the grassroots. Excellent. And so Kurt, when you first uh, reached out to Donna, particularly because you had done some work around the Flint water crisis, what exactly did you imagine would be the, the point of entry for architects in this issue? Oh, that's, well, that's a great question. As an infrastructural issue or maybe a, a design-oriented exercise or competition? Maybe a little bit of all of, all of the above. Uh, I guess the first thing is that 
you know, uh, practicing in the city of Flint, we've, we're, we are also affected by this in the office. Uh, the office is six person office. When I say office, Sedgwick and Florida Architects, just to make sure that people keep it clear. So the office is actually a 114 year old Victorian era shingle style building. So it's a residential building built so long ago. You know, once uh, one of the timeline events was the Virginia Tech professor. Uh, once we switched away from water, he did. He started doing some research based on his expertise to test our water throughout that process. And basically, you know, NPR said Virginia Tech researcher is going to make a press conference in downtown Flint to talk about his findings. And at that point, basically, this is when we started to find out that lead was in the water. And so as a practicing architect in the city, I said to the rest of the staff, I said, maybe we should stop making our coffee in the office with this water. So, you know, it's it's not just being an architect in the city, but it's it's being somebody, you know, personally affected by this. That I said, well, how can architecture or architects get involved to be a voice at the table and advocate that our talents and background can be a, a valuable participation in this process? And so brought that to I'm very involved with AIA and, and the, my obviously the vice president of the Flint chapter. So I brought it to the board at our chapter meeting and you know started to I guess gather a consensus and, and an energy to to start tackling some of these issues. In the short term, and a sort of a, a sort of introduction to this is from what we know with talking to citizens, is that what people read or hear on NPR or you know any of the news sources is that citizens are not only driving to their you know, closest water distribution site, they're also doing a total loop around the city to collect as much water as they can. And they're going to bring it into their house, which many of these houses are also, you know, 70, 80, 90 years old. So what AI Flint chapter and my uh, emerging professional counterpart, Amanda Harrell-Seaburn, created is a sort of an infographic that described a sort of X by Y, how big and how tall can you stack water in one space in these older homes so that you're not going to add any stress to the, the structural capacity of the floor. Uh, and th those were sort of handed out at the water stations. And so that's something that, you know, was sort of a minimal but you know, necessary step one to the, just become uh, a part of that process. Is that a good start? Should I just keep going? It's, <laughs> it's just so many things. Well, so has there been a concerted... So I'm assuming there has to be some kind of coordination between those parties of architects and also maybe National Guard efforts or federal authorities that have been dispatched in Flint at, during the state of emergency. Yeah, I guess, you know, the thing is, you know, I, I, I'm one voice, a uh, young architect in the city. And, you know, I started to hear some pushback, or I wouldn't say pushback, but some people asked the question, well, what do architects, you know, how do they, how can they get a part of this? Or, you know, what are their, what is their impact in this issue? And, you know, as, as practitioners, you know, that have this background in problem solving skills and trying to find solutions that benefit the community, you know, we may not have the control of infrastructure design as maybe, you know, historically architects had. But we, we can be a voice at the table. And so maybe a good way to answer this is just to explain an example. There's architecture firm in New Orleans, Wagoner Ball, who has been one of, but one of the leading participants in developing a New Orleans urban water plant post, 
you know, Katrina efforts. And so that's just one example that architects are advocating for larger infrastructural issues. And, and I know Don, Donna and I have listened to some of the keynote sessions today at Grassroots and especially the lunchtime session, you know, everybody up there, we have architects on the planning council, architect as mayor, architect as the you know city planner uh, here in Detroit. And they're all showing projects that are not small scale coffee shops, which is nothing against that. But, you know, they're talking about how architects uh, are able to coordinate a large group of people, public charrettes, and facilitate in that manner. So it's not just like the day-to-day drawing lines on paper or putting lines or walls in Revit. That's exactly what I was going to say, is we just today at the, the keynote session at lunch had five architects on the stage all talking about their city's efforts to reconnect to their riverfronts from Detroit to Seattle to San Antonio. And what kept going through my head was this idea that most of the public still thinks that architects design a discrete building sitting on one site, right? One discrete entity. But so much of what we do as architects is about these much larger connections to an urban built environment, as well as to how people live in those urban environments, right? I mean, that's entirely what we're taught, at least when I went to school. That's what we were taught in school. It wasn't about doing the discrete object, although I think all architects should also be able to design a chair or, you know, some completely small object. I also feel like so much of what our discipline focuses on and what we need to get the public to understand is that we think in these much bigger holistic ways about how all of the built environment comes together and, and functions. Donna, always way more eloquent than than I. <laughs> uh, but, you know, one thing I just did, wanted to touch on regarding the National Guard, and it, it may sort of segue into some interesting conversation is, you know, they deployed the National Guard to, to, to the city of Flint to help distribute water because, you know, our own fire department and police department are already in a stressed capacity. But one thing that it's it's caused is a certain or not just certain, but an immense amount of panic, not just among citizens and longtime residents, but, you know, for those that are migrant, you know, I want, don't want to use the word illegal aliens, but, you know, people that live and work in the city of Flint, but don't necessarily have those, you know, citizenship status of the country. And so when they see the flashing lights with the state patrol and the National Guard showing up at their door, they're not going to answer. They already tell their children and anybody that lives in that house, do not answer the door if you ever see lights. And so it's creating a, a, a inadvertent scare among many of the residents. And so, you know, it's, it's one of those things that create these ripple effect impacts that, you know, it's a, it's a benefit they're trying to provide, but then it creates a negative impact later. So, Kurt, I, I wanted to say that um, when I saw the graphic on the um, connections, what is the magazine, the publication that you have, the Young Architects publication? So for the Young Architects Forum, which is AI National Committee, uh, we do a digital magazine that's called Connection Magazine. Yep. Right. And then I, I thought the graphic was, you know, it's I think the small things that often get overlooked. I think there's such a casualness to picking up stacks of water and thinking that that's, you know, that's it's solving the problem. But actually, it's often overlooked. Right. If I stack six of these in one spot. And these old homes, you know, what's it going to do? And it's such a small gesture, uh, such an important graphic to have. But more, the one thing I'm curious about is what, what's the generally, what's the, your general sense of being on the ground? What's the tone and the kind of 
the the tenor of the community at this point. We you know when we see the we see Flint through the lens of of mainstream media, we kind of get a picture that either you know of a, a desperate resident, you know, people waiting in lines for water, or you know, what is is there? It seems like the governor wants to really push ahead on solutions. And I just saw something come through the news today that the Senate has uh, agreed to uh, funding for this issue. But is there still, is the, is the anger, is it still palpable? Is it, is it rising day by day? Or is it people finally gotten past that and just want to see the water problem solved? Or is it still there? Yeah, that's great. I think I think uh, the, the citizens, the, the residents have a, a serious perception issue uh, and rightly so, there's pretty much no trust in our local officials uh, and all the way up to, to the governor. You know, especially, you know, with the media, as as this thing evolved, the media started to uncover all these various emails and things that, that exposed a certain knowledge that something was going wrong, but they weren't, they weren't uh, letting the people know that this thing was, was already on their radar. And so... All that stuff comes out. The people, this, you know, it's, it fires them up, and then you know they they get angry, and you know they the the trust is lost. And you know, as anybody would know, if you if you violate trust, I mean, that's a very hard thing to rebuild and regain. I think one, I, I would say that the anger, I wouldn't say it's at a peak. I wouldn't say that it's it's necessarily going to rise either, or you know, fire up any farther. I feel. As somebody who you know works in the city, and I, you know, work with, get involved with different community members, that the general tone is that it, you know there's lots of millions of dollars being, you know, the numbers are just being thrown around in in all these different articles. But I don't think anybody sees where they're where they're going to go. You know, I don't think there there's no real plan yet, and I think people are afraid that the no plan, you know, this thing is going to sort of blow over, and they'll still be in the same position they are now or a year ago. So the one thing that when you talk about mistrust and, and lack of trust, the oftentimes we see or we think that trust, the lack of it is a level that government enforces that because um, those are the people who are supposed to be in charge. And we have the emergency manager program that this governor has instituted. However, I would say that by and large, any institutions of power in that region, given the nature of of people coming in at a time of crisis, kind of instituting their kind of their system on top of a of a broken of a broken city, would also be seen. How how is the AIA working to stave off any kind of um, sense that you know here's another organization to tell us how to live our lives? So is AIA working to try to build those layers of trust so that they can kind of get some positive, get some people on a foundation of trust? Because it doesn't seem that the government has it, and it would be easy for the AIA to kind of miss that miss that step. Is it working on that? Well, that's a good point. You know, so for example, for for reference, I guess AI Flint chapter is approximately thirty five to thirty seven members, either associate or architect members. So we are rather rather small chapter. However, we are very close to each other as far as geographically as well as uh, you know being that small we have a, a strong uh, continuity with each other and we you know we know each other very well we you know right now it's really this thing is a, such a fast moving target uh, there's a couple of things like starting with the water 
and that actually that was a, a good starting. I appreciate your noticing, you know, the the small things that do make a difference. That thing did, uh, I think, make a beginning or an opening to that, and it was well received. And ABC uh, Channel Twelve did a little piece on some of the chapter members that were, you know, getting this this flyer out there. And we're also as a chapter, you know, we're because all this started at the begin, beginning, well, I would say, you know, as AI business goes, you know, through December, things are a little bit uh, loose. And so, you know, January, when we started our meetings uh, up for the year, you know, we started discussing these things and what various avenues to go for, you know, and the problem itself is evolving very quickly, still trying to figure it out. But one thing that we discussed as a board, and it's, it's I guess, in an incubation stage, but we're going to try and uh, put it out there is this, a design competition that the Flint chapter is hosting. But we don't want it to be a design competition to just have, you know, 200 entries of very beautiful renderings. And not, not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> but we want to build in a conversation and have this competition result in some framework or some uh, examples that can then be moved on into a, a sort of guideline document or something that can also be shared with other chapters or other cities, not just AIA members, but you know, a document that can be shared with other places that have aging infrastructure that we can develop into something so that you know, other parts of the country don't have to start from zero. They have something, a resource that they can go to. And, and this is sort of mirrored off of what uh, the New York chapter has done post Sandy. You know, they created this resilient design framework and guidelines, you know, so to avoid another natural disaster like Sandy. Now, however, you know, in Flint, we won't get hurricanes, hopefully. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> Global climate change. Global, yeah. But, but in Michigan and other Rust Belt communities, you know, we are suffering from maybe you would call it man made disasters, you know, just things that, you know, are not you know super storms but things like these you know lack of infrastructure maintenance and things like that and so trying to make it in a nutshell this design competition is is uh, the brief that we're we're still shaping and forming a little bit is to sort of talk invite people designers students you know citizens people anybody who has has an idea they think would work to think in a resilient fashion and think about a sort of systemic solution. So just to give a little background, if we think about Clarence Perry, the urban designer and architect who developed this concept called the neighborhood unit. And so in this neighborhood unit was a local community school and surrounding that school was the citizens and the, you know, the infrastructure in place to, you know, have sort of a, a, a small tight knit neighborhood. And it was a, you know, one of our architecture school, uh, maybe uh, history class lessons back in the day. But the city of Flint developed with a lot of that in mind. And so there's a lot of schools strategically located around the city based on a walkable neighborhood unit. And now with a shrinking city phenomenon, those schools are now empty. So our idea is to choose one as a prototype that can be used as the site for the competition that could inspire uh, anybody submitting an entry to think about how that building could be repurposed and maybe the roof. I mean, I'm not trying to make any ideas here, but you know, if you used 
some component to store rainwater. Maybe there's some filtration of rainwater. The old ball fields on the site can be used as, you know, uh, fruit or food production. And so this, this old school site, which has no purpose anymore, can then become a self-sustaining, resilient structure that then is already situated in these neighborhoods. So in a, <laughs> which the nutshell didn't really happen there, but that's <laughs> kind of the idea. <laughs> Sorry, the, make it so dense and, and difficult, but so that's, that's kind of thing that we want to do. So it's, we can try and develop this thing quickly, but the idea is that the outcome won't just be the one-off competition, but the outcomes continue that conversation and how we can assist other aging infrastructure cities around the country. So exactly what, what I was going to talk about. First, one thing was that in terms of the AIA engaging with these kinds of issues, AIA Indiana won a national award not long ago for a, a booklet we put together that was about how schools can analyze tornado risk. Because in Indiana, tornadoes are obviously a huge problem, or you know they can be incredibly dangerous. And so we put together this little packet of information to give to public schools or to any schools and say, you know, analyze what your risk level is for a tornado. Do you have safe spaces set up? Do you have the drills all in place? And, you know, and then offered through that are the services of AIA architects to come and do assessments or things. So I think there's there's definitely precedent for AIA and architects to get involved in in these kinds of conversations. But just going back to the notion of, um, as you said, Kurt, that this is not, you know, there's not going to be a hurricane hitting Flint, most likely, but there are infrastructural issues that are on a national disaster kind of level. And I just want to reference my friend and professor at Ball State named Olin Dotson, who here in the Rust Belt, the schools, we've been looking at these, you know, these kinds of infrastructure issues for a long time. And Olin, Professor Olin Dotson coined this term fourth world. I'm pretty sure he was the one who coined it. That fourth world is now the places that are aging into infrastructure issues that we never would have thought a first world country or community would have to deal with, right? So fourth world is what Flint is. It's a natural man-made disaster, right? Just due to the aging infrastructure. Ken, did you have a comment you wanted to make? Or Yeah, you know, I think I like the idea of competitions. I like the idea of of getting um, design ideas out there. What I like even more is um, a credible partnership with people who can actually make these things happen. Because my biggest my biggest bone to pick with my professional organization, which I've recently paid my first uh, installment on, ouch, and I'm good <laughs> at um, picking a bone with my organization, is that we're good at looking up. We're good at creating commercials. We're good at, uh, you know, inviting Kevin Spacey to AIA <laughs> conventions. We're good at all these things. But the one thing we suck, suck, suck at is raising money to effect policy change. And if the national isn't in there, like, supporting you guys, I, I kind of wonder, what do we have a national or why am I paying national organization dues if they're not seeing this as a national crisis? Because it doesn't stop with Flint. It didn't begin with Flint. And it doesn't, it doesn't, it's, 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 a, it's a systemic failure throughout this country. And design competitions, as I often love, are not the solution to these problems. And I want, you know, I, I think that we need to get 
more involved in, in affecting political change and making sure that there's a reason. I mean, there's a, Flint was a, a glorious city at one time, and we've all seen Roger and Me. I, I saw Roger and Me when it first came out in the theater. I'm well aware of, of what General Motors has done to that, or most, I think General Motors was the one that was kind of vilified, but I think most of, most of the auto industry that created this, uh, that we created in this country is responsible for what's going on in Flint and the surrounding communities, probably like Pontiac and, and other, others as well. Unless we start getting real, honest, public-private partnerships, I just don't, I just don't, I see this as just another kind of effort at deflecting anger away from the central issue, which is failure of government to kind of see these things through. Yeah, this was particularly tragic given that, at least at the outset, the reason why the water was ever switched to the Flint River source in the first place was just as a cost-saving measure, because Flint had already gotten to a point of such extreme poverty that the budget was no longer in the jurisdiction of the city and instead just went to the state, to the whole state government. So they put in this emergency budgetary restriction person who basically just had to cut costs at any possible point and said, well, we're going to switch our water source to this new system that's going to be built in 2016 anyway. So until then, let's uh, remove the water source, let's switch from the Lake Huron water source to Flint River. And in that transaction, that was where kind of everything went to hell. And all of the, uh, the protocols that are in place in the EPA and in water in management in general just were not followed to the T that they should have been. And Ken, I totally agree with you with how kind of the idealism of a, a competition at this point seems pretty misguided. We had some notes in the comments to the should Flint relocate its children piece that Nicholas uh, Cordy in our office posted that people should, you know, let's just throw a design competition at it. <laughs> I'm offering <laughs> an, a million dollar prize, which to me is just like kind of laughable giving that the request for federal assistance is to the tune of 28 million. And so giving a designer a million dollars, which frankly, this isn't really a design issue. It's a, yeah, as you say, Ken, like a, a support of federal infrastructure problem. So I think that there is some kind of, while I, I don't doubt that there's absolutely a role for architects to bring some type of unique perspective on how to solve problems like this, especially in the interim, when as they are infrastructural problems that have a long-term goal to me that we're not going to solve the issue immediately. I think there is a place for architects, but the design competition route is definitely, doesn't seem to be the most efficient one. There was a lot of ideas brought up in the comments around, like, just in general, that this is much more of an issue of policy, even though there is, of course, a physical infrastructure problem <laughs> happening. And so it, it really takes a lot that is out of the architect's wheelhouse, despite the fact that we are also trying very hard to bring our own quality, or I won't speak for us because I'm not an architect, but as bringing the architect's uh, perspective and sensibilities to help in any way that they can, which I think, Kurt, you articulated pretty well, specifically in regard to things like the water placement. That's so simple and so basic, but of course, isn't probably going to be heard of from, from another community. You know, it goes again to the today, the keynote, the luncheon session we had today with the five different architects from around the country. And, and earlier in the morning, we had talked to, we had a a panel discussion of mayors, some mayors and some other people that are involved in, in government. And one of the things that one of the guys said, and I'm sorry, I, I'll have to look at my Twitter feed to remember who it was that said it was, you know, that it was a mayor speaking. And he said, architects are not just designers. You also have to be educators and you need to teach us, us mayors, us political people, why what you know is so important. And so that we can learn from you, learn from your expertise. Kurt, you you remember who said that or? Well, I don't really remember his name. I think it was the uh, the Birmingham mayor. The mayor of Birmingham. I think it oh, was. Alabama. Um, but yeah, I mean, that. I guess 
the hand in hand of the architect and the educator, you know, it does make sense. And I feel a little bit burnt by Ken, but I'll, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, live, I'll live. I understand. I totally, uh, you know, understand his point for sure, you know, regarding that design competitions. And I guess w- what I was trying to stress is that, you know, it, the, the act of the competition itself is not really the, the, the end goal. It's, it's, it's the outcome and the right. conversation that we can still, you know, continue on. And then I guess, and I'm not trying to defend anything. I'm sure that the forum threads will like me even more, but, you know, we're trying to also, you know, come at it with multiple multiple prongs of attack next week we'll have our another our next you know chapter meeting and we'll try and uh, have more more ideas at the table you know here's the thing I, I think here's what i would stress to you is i think what i think is important and, and again this is coming from an outsider but from someone who likes bashing our organization somewhat or taking shots is that bashing from within bashing yeah, from within it's fine yeah, i'm not gonna Tough be love. on the sidelines i'm gonna throw uh, throw stones at my own glass house so i'll tell you why it's important to have competitions i don't think the results are important i think what's important because i don't think the result at the end of the day if you're looking to build something from this i don't think it's going to happen so the results that you have to look for i think in my mind is engaging the community so that they feel like they're channeling their energy towards a collective voice so that they can affect change and so that you could actually be the megaphone by which they could shout through. And you can put, like we always do, whenever we go into these community design sessions, we get 50 billion dumb ideas and we take those five or six great ideas and we make a great thing. We turn it into something positive. So you give people a chance to vent but you're, they're venting through a, a conduit that allows you to have not... See, those people don't feel like they're... They feel disenfranchised. They don't feel like they have anybody listening to them. And if they can say it to you and you can articulate it in a way and put power to their speech, that can affect the change that needs to happen. Because now you're not... They're not speaking as a quasi uneducated mass, which is what they're seeing. The media sees them that way. The, the, the stupid idiot governor sees them that way. That idiot uh, emergency manager <laughs> sees them that way. You got people there who fill out forms to recall these jerks, and then they get slapped down for having a comma in the wrong place or not spell checking their fucking forms correctly. So if you guys can be that authentic voice and give them power, where they feel they don't, then I think your competitions will be more successful than you imagine. Okay, great. I agree. <laughs> and I hope I feel better now. <laughs> well, uh, uh, so Ken, I mean, in a lot of ways, you are right. It's, it's, I went out to dinner last night and because I'm, uh, you know, I still feel Detroit still feels very much like a certain home for me because of the school. I went to school here and so I went out to Slow's Barbecue last night and I just have to rep Slow's Barbecue because it's been sort of this Detroit Renaissance story. And I got to say, as someone who grew up on North Carolina Lexington Barbecue, Slow's Barbecue is some of the best barbecue I've ever eaten. So everyone who's listening, if you get to Detroit, it's worth the hour and a half wait for a table to go to Slow's Barbecue. But so we, since we were sitting there for an hour and a half waiting at the bar, I got to talking to people and there's lots of local people there. And one woman I spoke to is... Um, she actually works for one of the counties in child protective services for a county. And um, she flat out said those kids need to get taken out of Flint. It is unsafe for children to be in the city of Flint right now. 
And she was furious, of course, at just as you say, Ken, uh, Ken, she was furious that she feels like she does know about children and she doesn't know how to make herself heard, even though she works for a for a government entity. So I think, yeah, giving people these uh, the opportunity to get that anger out and then to help make that those voices become something that can actually enact change. That's that's the goal. Right. Oh, it's a strange time to be here right now. And so, Kurt, just on your end, you, like your final comments. I mean, I, I just want to make sure you're you have water to drink in Flint, right? Are you safe? Are you? What's your situation? Oh yeah, thanks. Well, yeah. So after, I would say, uh, well, so here's here was our band aid solution back when the Virginia Tech research. So that was probably last sometime last summer, early summer, you know, June maybe. You know, I forget the dates because I mean it's just every day. But I think it was August of 2015. August. Yeah. Okay. And so since then, so I have a coworker who lives about 10 minutes south who, you know, in a community called Grand Blanc, they're, they're attached to the Detroit water supply. So, you know, they, you know, unaffected. And so what he would do is he, w- he started off with like three gallon jugs of water. And then as we use them to make our coffee, which is pr- primarily what we, we use the water for and then wash the dishes, but he would bring those jugs. And then when they empty, he'd take them home, refill them. And so we we are still doing a little bit of that, but also recently, I'd say maybe just a couple of weeks ago, they are now opening up the businesses in the city of Flint to pick up uh, packages of bottled water as well, as well as the citizens or the residents of the city. So we do that in addition to it. But um, yeah, as far as drinking out of the tap, it's just don't do it anymore. Even now, you know, when they, you know, we've all had a few false alarms of like, oh, the, the water is safe. But again, you know, who do we trust in that situation? But right. so we're, you know, and, and I, I guess to finish on that, that point is that, you know, moving the, the children out of Flint is that, you know, yes, as adults and, and employees in the city of Flint, you know, I, it's, it's personally affects me. But then I, you know, I feel for, for those babies, the kids and the, you know, the, the pregnant mothers that, you know, had no say, no voice, as Ken said. And. And that, you know, these children, you know, they're at their developmental stages and they're going to be impacted by this for 10 to 20 years or maybe lifelong, yeah. you know. So that that to me is worse than the fact that our office can get, you know, bottled water as, as, as adults. We aren't as affected by it as what we read, you know, yeah. and it's really those developing brains. And that that's the worst problem. I thought it was so just full of a huge sense of irony that before the threat had kind of been fully validated by um, the government agencies that were kind of denying the fact that anything was really an issue. GM closed its, stopped using water from the Flint River in its factories because it was finding just like rusting to happening way too quickly on some of the brand new created aspects of its automobiles. And so is this kind of like, that is just one image that is really strong associated with this. And it's not necessarily, might not have necessarily been specifically about the lead, but just the the whole source of this having much longer implications than just the immediate health effects. Of course, we, yeah, it can't occur, as you mentioned, having a long-term public health concern for the young children and the general young generation growing up in Flint, but also for these businesses that are being affected by it and having this questioning of whether or not there is a, an ability to trust the infrastructure operating as it should and as it, as it can to keep the already obviously very vulnerable economy of Flint going. So I think that pretty much ends up our episode for this week. We we are really happy, Kerr, that you were able to join us and kind of give us a little bit of a perspective from on the ground architects architects in Flint. Because of course, yeah, as we're getting everything filtered through a 
the national news media, everything does seem to be coming and it's most extreme. So it's very helpful to have someone who's actually there give their perspective. And we invite all other architects, both uh, in Flint and outside of Flint, who have opinions on this to continue the discussion on Arconnect and, and anywhere. I think the more attention that's given to this will help hopefully solve this issue soon and uh, eliminate or reduce the number of uh, infrastructural problems like this in the, in the future. So thank you again, Kurt, for joining us this week. And thanks to everybody out there for listening to this episode. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our new Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag Arconnect Sessions. You can also send an email to connect at Arconnect. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. And uh, coming this Monday is another episode of our other podcast, One to One. Amelia, who do we have this week? This week, we're going to be talking to Sylvia Levin, the head of the PhD in architecture program at UCLA and also a professor of architectural history and theory there. I also have to give a shout out to Kurt for perhaps having, maybe not listened to, but at least having brought up something that was also brought up in our last one-to-one interview with Alan Loomis, which was the Clarence Perry neighborhood plan. So we always... <laughs> He's <laughs> we a dedicated get... podcast listener. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yes, Thanks. excellent. So Bucket list achieved. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Excellent. Oh my gosh. We want to fulfill all those bucket lists. So yes, next week, Sylvia Levin, join us on One to One. Yes. Be like Kurt. <laughs> Subscribe to One to One as well. And uh, yeah, thanks again. And uh, we'll talk to everybody next week. Talk to everyone next week. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.